Not just beautiful, though. The stars are like the trees in the forest, alive and breathing, and they're watching. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Matt, that was one of my favourite ever authors. Do you know who it was? Was it Haruki Murakami? It absolutely was. I mean, oh, is there anyone that describes things more beautifully and romantically than him? Yeah. Does he, does he write his books in Japanese and then they get translated or does he write them in English? That's a very good question. Which one, which I will find out and let you know. Yeah. So, what what book was that from? Watch of his many. That's Kafka on the. That's Kafka on the shore. <clears throat> Lovely. Cool. So, Matt, how are you? I'm very well. I've got a bit of a cold again, and it sounds like you have too. Yeah, I've got some sniffles. Don't worry, we haven't been snogging, well, guys. I obviously got it when I saw you on on Wednesday. How annoying is that? We only went to see. We only went to see <laughs> the mighty yes <laughs> at Brighton. We? Yeah, we did. We were living the dream, and they performed Starship Troopers, of course classic i did it was an emotional night so matt what have we got coming up uh well we have got uh an interview our monthly interview with david baker legend so i chatted to him about space force oh yes changi four uh-huh deep space gateway hmm. and the problems with interstellar navigation there's one or two i want to do some uh birthday shouts oh go on do you want to go first i i think that i would like to Wish a very happy birthday to George Russell, your son. Yeah, George. He shares a birthday with Werner von Braun. I can't believe that's a year ago since we did that Werner von Braun special. That's a year ago. That's a year ago. Oh, I feel sick. I know. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. That and I thought, is crazy. And I thought it's also worth pointing out today is Jessica Chastain of Interstellar and The Martian fame. It's her birthday as well. Oh, happy birthday, Jess. And not only that, Jamie, Jamie, what? Jamie, Jamie, it is the anniversary of of good old Dirk Freemuth's flying into space, becoming oh. the first Belgian in space. Bon anniversaire. So 24th of March, 1992. Of course, that was on STS 45 with Mike Fowl. One of our favourite people from ESA. Incredible. Yeah. And you can check him out on our podcast, 50, one of our special podcasts at STEC, and we speak to Dirk. 50 so was a good cool. one. Go back, yeah. check it out, and relive some of the wisdom of Mighty Dirk. Something really cool happened to me this week. What happened? I went into WH Smith. Uh-huh. Actually, did I have WH Smith in America? Mm, I don't think so. I don't know, but I, but it's a, it's a sort of big magazine shop. You can get and your I went books, your birthday cards, your stationery. Yeah. Stationery, stationery shop. Yeah, Maybe yeah. that's what it is. And they sell those large bars seemingly all year. They, sit, they they serve the large bars of Toblerone. I mean, who who buys that? You know, no, like, they're, they're just... almost comedy large. Like, how would you even start eating that? And not only that, I thought it was just people coming back from a holiday. And yeah, you, you get it at the airport and it's like, hey, hey. Got, got this for 50 quid, bargain. It's like, what? Why? Yeah, a bit weird. Just buy a chocolate but bar. Guess what was in there? What? A copy of Space Flight featuring a little picture of us two at STEC. Get fact, out. That, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah, a little picture of us uh, because, yeah, we, we, we get featured in, in spaceflight each month. We finally became... We've made it, Jamie. We've made, we've made, we've made it spaceflight. Yeah, that's it. Well, that's it. We made it into, onto the magazine shelves, not just the podcast sphere. My God, now we're in print. Get it. I mean, what medium doesn't love us? Come on. <laughs> I hope my mum's listening. Uh, no, I'll tell you what's been great this week. We've had some fantastic um, communications from listeners. Uh, you're not going to like this, Jamie, but oh, um, God. there was a chap called John O'Sullivan, who some of you actually might know from his book, In the Footsteps of Columbus, European Missions to the International Space oh, Station, yeah. which is a brilliant book. I bought it, actually, uh, after after uh, speaking on Twitter to Mr. Mm. John O'Sullivan, and it's a great little book. Uh, he was a little bit annoyed about the easy ride we gave um, Mitch last oh, week. Oh, dear, the Asteroid really? Mining Corporation, yeah, yeah. Okay. So his, I think his main objection was... What's his beef? His beef was, I think, that the likelihood of a launch in 2020. And I must admit, I, uh, even at the time I was thinking, it's yeah, very that's, that, that's really optimistic. But then... Saying that, I actually mm. don't know because because he's actually launching that first mission. Obviously, isn't actually mining an asteroid. No, it's it's, it's sending like a prospector nanosat. Nanosat, yeah. So that nanosat is a six U sat. And bear in mind that's only ten centimeters by twenty centimeters by thirty centimeters. Why is that so? Um... Well, I don't. Do you know what? I don't know. And I'd actually really like uh, one of our listeners. I'm sure there must be people out there who uh, build nanosats, etc., who can tell me yeah. how long it would take from the drawing board, uh, from financing through to actually getting it up into space. What the shortest possible journey could possibly be? Yes. And then, then we see if 2020 is unrealistic. I mean, uh, and like you will definitely say i think that we're going to go back to mitch and say can yeah. we have a comment you know yeah, yeah, what's your rebuttal yeah so there's also um john was complaining about the industrial revolution being the third industrial revolution but he was saying that really we're in the industrial revolution 4.0 which i think is a probably a semantic point because mm. there's been lots of sort of people saying oh this is the industrial revolution no this is the industrial revolution so yeah it's interesting uh, i think that's just semantics but i kind of got his point and i think that's fair enough but he also I understand that and it's I, hard to define yeah and he also pointed out the lack of actual earth mining uh, that mitch's company has been doing therefore it's quite hard to expect them to be able to then go off and do some actual asteroid mining which I think it's a fair mm. point, but I'll let Mitch. Let's see if Mitch is able to yeah. answer that question and, and what his rebuttal is. It to would that. be nice to hear from him for sure, and uh, we'll definitely try and get that in next week's poddy. But absolutely fantastic, John, for for, for getting those points over because I, I yeah, we love that. We are not just here for yeah. the sycophants, no. Which Matt, do we do we ever have any of those actually? Oh no, I tell you, we we did we did have one guy that uh, TJ TJ Cooney. I hope that's oh, how, you put, name. Yeah, how you pronounce his name. He sent a uh, lovely email saying how much he enjoyed the podcast. And we should check out his new BFR trailer that he's created. So oh. he, his YouTube channel is I Need More Space. That's which is, good. Which is quite funny in itself. So, yes, check that out. So it's a yeah, BFR trailer video on I Need More Space. But it, it was, you know, that was really good. Please go and support TJ. TJ, and talking about support, Jamie. What should people should What should people do? 
Well, I think you need to go to interplanetary.org.uk. Big time. Check, I mean, I mean, you know what? Check everything out, mm-hmm. but please cast your eye over our Patreon page oh. and check out how you can support us. I mean, Matt, this kind of thing we would normally drop in at the end of the podcast, but you know what? It's a shout-out. It's a long podcast today, Jamie. We often have people who obviously get bored before the end and just stop listening. So we're going to tell you now. (laughs) It's a big shout-out. Jamie, what's been in the news? Well, it's all about Mars Curiosity at the moment, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's only hit a new milestone, Matt. What is that milestone, Jamie? Two thousandth Martian day, or Sol, on the red planet. How amazing is that? That's really cool, isn't it? That's a that's a really good uh, milestone. Still going. Still started drilling again. Oh, it's very exciting. Matt, I watched The Martian again the other day. I forgot how much I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It's a great film. Great book as well. Do you I, think, Matt, really when, do you think we'll be growing potatoes in, on Mars soon? Um, oh, I've got... That ties in with our space fact right at the end of the programme. So, listeners, listen oh, to yeah. our space fact because it involves... Well, I'll tell you what, if everything was a cliffhanger, it's that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, my favourite bit of news that I woke up to this morning was uh, Elon Musk has deleted his Facebook page. What's the story? <laughs> well, obviously, uh, London company Cambridge Analytica have been very, oh, very yeah. naughty. Those and, pirates. Um, and uh, Elon Musk in his inimitable way, said he didn't. He, he wasn't even sure what the Facebook pages for SpaceX and Tesla were like. Yeah, he went, <laughs> I, I didn't even know we had one. I'll, I'll just delete it. And apparently he said it looks lame anyway. Brilliant. <laughs> so he's got rid of his Facebook and Twitter, uh, Facebook um, for Tesla and um, Tesla and SpaceX. So the boycott Facebook, that's, mm. a, that's a major blow. So something exciting for us uh, yeah, Europeans. Uh, cool. And this will tie in with a chat that I had with Remco Timmermans, who, which was yes. what I'll be playing next week, um, because we had to get this David Baker one in this week to tie in with Spaceflight. So we've mm. got uh, Sentinel Three B has mm. now is now at Plesetsk in Russia and is ready to lift off on the twenty fifth of April this week, um, and that's part of the Copernicus satellite, European Copernicus satellites, which are Earth observation satellites. So that's exciting. Lovely. And also announced this week was ESA's fourth medium-class science mission that's going to launch round about mid-2028, 2028, on an Ariane mm. 6. And it's going to be called Ariel. Oh, nice. Either named after the Kate Bush album... Or it's an acronym for Atmospheric Remote Sensing Infrared Exoplanet Large Survey. Well, I'm still going with The Little Mermaid, but whatever you want to say, man. <laughs> so um, it's going to be that that's going to go up and try and look at the atmospheres and chemical makeup of exoplanets. I love stuff Thousands like this. This is the stuff I love. It's like, you know, just. Going out there into the yonder, yeah. So collecting collecting data, a bit like a lot of the missions we talk about. It's going to Lagrange Point L two. It is that one, the other side uh, to the sun. Um, Just to clarify, Matt, sorry to interrupt. Is that still your favourite Lagrange? It point? is still my favourite Lagrange point. Good, and, and good. I just so. want to. If it changes, you'll let us know. I'll yeah? let you know if 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 for any reason my favourite Lagrange point good. or FLP. 
changes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, so dear. yeah, it, it's Ariel's chosen uh, above three other candidates, which uh, sorry was chosen from three candidates. Um, the really spectacularly named Thor. Mm. Turbulence heating observer. <laughs> Love that. And the Xype, the X-ray imaging polarimetry explorer. See, I don't think Xype won because of its rubbish acronym. Barely an acronym. I know. I mean, come on, guys, think harder. Yeah, think harder. Thor. If man, you're up against Thor, Ari- you're never going to win. Against Ariel and Thor. Come on. <laughs> I mean, just good luck. Do you know the good thing about Ariel is it's going to be led by a UK team at the University of oh, College, L- University in. College London. Um, and this is what Graham Turnock of the UK Space Agency said. It is thanks to the world-leading skills of our innovative space community that a UK-led <laughs> consortium has been chosen to take forward the next ESA science mission. This demonstrates what a vital role we continue to play in Europe. There we go. What do you think? That is... That's beautiful. And actually, hats off, because... We should be proud of that, shouldn't we, Matt? It makes me less nervous about Brexit, things like that. Absolutely, yeah. More, more of those stuff, please. More, more. What thirty first of this month is, of course, the deadline for the Lunar X Prize. So, anyone out there who wants so it's to win not that, going to be extended. Yeah, this it, is it. <laughs> you better get your skates on. You so, absolutely better get your skates on, please. Yeah. Hey, Matt, do you want to hear about? Do you want to hear about a controversial satellite? Yeah. Hit me with the controversy. Well, you know what I'm going to say, don't oh. you? It's the Humanity Star. Not, not my favourite. And after just two months in space, it's fallen back to Earth and burned up in the planet's atmosphere. Good. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and we want to know if it really did what it was supposed to. Well... What do you think, Matt? Well, obviously, it launched a, a, a up on the Electron, which, is, which mm. was a fantastic achievement in itself. And if, for anything, this took a little bit of the gloss off it. Or, mm. or ironically, the shine off it so it's it's yeah i suppose it started a debate that was quite an important one about commercial use of particularly low earth orbit where you're going to put junk in so i think i suppose it started a debate on that but i think beck's idea was it was supposed to um make people look up to the stars and wonder about our place in the universe but Come on, yes. there's stars there to do that, not not blooming. I know. I don't think satellites. we need anything man-made. It's not. It's not as good as what's up there. Stop it. I saw some. I saw some. <laughs> I saw some uh, uh, good quotes about. Um, I couldn't wait till the last time that Disco died, and I couldn't wait for this one either, <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. You know what? I mean, without disrespecting uh the, the the fine people that made this i just uh, what is the point really yep um i mean come on so a quick one actually i, I want to mention um uh one of my favorite esa space missions the gaia satellite oh yes so that had a technical anomaly last month that put it into Ooh. safe mode was it like somebody called it and said my computer's not working, and they just said switch it on and switch it off again. Yeah, it went dee doon doon ding like that. Is that what happened? Yeah, and uh, and they just had to get it back up again. Uh, but excitingly, it's going to release its second lot of data on twenty fifth of Ooh. April. So not not uh, long now. There's twenty fifth of April again. Oh yeah, it's quite the date. It's quite the date. Uh, and even more excitingly, um, go on, Chinese space station. 
the Changgong oh. One. How are they getting on? Well, the Changgong One, it, within the next two weeks, we're going to see it crashing into the Earth. Now, that sounds a bit dangerous. Well, you're 10 million times more likely to be hit by lightning. Oh. It's, it's quite remote being hit by the Changgong One. That's not going to be of comfort to anyone who's recently been hit by lightning. No. No, absolutely, they'll probably be a bit scared by that. But yeah. a little ESA have put in a, a a kind of map about where it will land, and you'll notice that United Kingdom falls well outside of that map, whereas all of Africa, all of Australia, New Zealand, South America, and and America, not Canada, fall within it. So it could come down anywhere. Yeah, sorry, guys. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I reckon New Zealand's going to get it. Well, you know what, Matt? If- it's going to it's going to all land in the back of Beck's house to teach him a lesson. I think I think it just the good thing is is that whatever happens, at least we'll be here to cover the news. No, absolutely. Well, we've got a few more a few more bits of news to cover here because the big one this week, of course, uh, which came to its conclusion last night, was Roscosmos launched the MS08 mission. MS08, um, uh, which is to replenish crew on the International Space Station. Love that yeah. word, replenish. So it's six, the 63rd launch of the Soyuz FG rocket and 137th flight of a crewed Soyuz. Um, oh. And, uh, yeah, Expedition 55. And mm. here they are, Commander Oleg Artemyev from, Roscosm- uh, from the Russian Space Agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, flight engineer Andrew J. Feustel from NASA and flight engineer Richard R. Arnold from NASA. Good. Uh, so after 8 minute 45 seconds to orbit, its uh, third stage has then blasted off to the International Space Station where it had to chase the International Space Station down for a couple of days. Uh, and it arrived last night at 7.40 Greenwich Mean Time, so yesterday mm-hmm. evening. And uh, they opened the hatch after checking for leaks uh, at about quarter to 10 last night. Lovely. So all all is well. All is well. And they, what astronauts did uh, did they join on the International Space Station? You should you should remember your favourite. Well, I know that I I know that um, S Tingle Mr. is uh, <laughs> or, or or Stingle the Stingle the as Stingle's I call up him. there. Yeah, um, he's up there, and uh, so is Anton. Yeah, Anton Skaplorov and Norishige Kanai. Yeah. Not a shigi, can I? I think that that's a strong crew. That's a very Only strong crew to get stronger. Yeah, but and and very very soon we'll see, on the March March twenty ninth this week we'll see Feustel and Arnold. Uh, no sooner have they got to the International Space Station that they'll be going out and doing a EVA. God, that's not much rest, is no. it? Right, get out, lads. So, that's so great. Imagine being up there and just being that isolated. Hmm. How excited you would be for visitors, oh. and not just visitors, but like you know, workmates. You're going to be like in each other's pockets. Can you imagine? Oh, that would be can brilliant. imagine though if Scott Tingle and Richard Arnold had fallen out years before? It's like, oh, mm. no, like oh, not him. Oh, anyone no, but anyone Tingle. But, anyone but Arnold, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we should mention actually, Jamie. There's a big one mm. in history. Sixty years ago. On March the 17th, we just missed that one uh, for the last podcast, was the launch of Vanguard 1, oh, which is Vanguard. still up there 
along with its uh, rocket that uh, put it up there, and it's the it's the longest ever uh, orbiting object. Um, it's close so to it's, our heart, yeah, isn't it, Matt? 60th, the Vanguard yeah, one, sixtieth anniversary. It's up there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Nikita Khrushchev uh, called it the grapefruit satellite because it looks a bit like a grapefruit, and it's the first solar powered satellite as well. How about that? I saw a very funny video about a grapefruit, Matt, that I'll tell you off air. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Look forward to that. While while the listeners listen to my David Baker interview, yeah, you can tell me then. Okay, sure. Here is a really, really, in- again, really, really interesting. I love David Baker's uh, twist on things. Uh, he tries to catch me out, but I'm, I, I, I make a great recovery. So, You're just too you can, quick, aren't you, See if you, you can Matt? spot it. <laughs> but, Here we go. And see who's, MR, which segues do you prefer? Okay. MR versus DB. Ecoute. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Matt. I'm just fine. Thank you very much. So what are we talking about this month? Well, there's some very, very exciting things happening right down on, on Earth here. Um, dare I say it, in the Trump administration. <laughs> Lots of interesting things always to talk about happening there. But this time he's outing a plan that has been pulled out of some Air Force planning, U.S. Air Force, for a space force with militarization of space in a way which will completely and totally transform the way U.S. national space policy is, is addressed, because up to this time they've said um, that they, they have conformed to the international agreement for, for the non-placement of weapons of mass destruction in space. Um, there is also the agreement on, on a more conciliatory and international scale with regard to the next stage, with regard to advancing into deep space, and there's some interesting stuff that's been happening with regard to the international partners on that. And then we've got the Chinese off to the moon later this year on two missions, six months apart. And in spaceflight next month, we're going to be looking at how you navigate to Alpha Centauri. (laughs) Jamie will be very excited about that one. Does this new Space Force actually start ripping up the International Space Treaty? Is Is it that serious? Well, I think we've got a long way to go yet before anybody agrees. And I mean anybody. I mean the people who hold the purse strings in America, Congress, essentially. There is no considered and uh, agenda plan for it specifically, but there's been a lot of discussion against the background um, that people generally do not seem quite aware of, that the majority of American space money goes to the military. NASA's budget is historically less than half that that is spent in the United States on space. The military side is really not non-weaponizing. It, it is the development of reconnaissance analysis, of surveillance from space, of signals intelligence, and of data gathering, of early warning systems, which are constantly policing the planet with regard to not only illegal nuclear detonations for undeclared development of nuclear weapons, but also for the potential to instantly observe a preemptive attack from a major power with a large nuclear arsenal. So there's been a huge emphasis in the past on the robust consolidation for national security purposes of monitoring and surveillance, and it used to include 
meteorological observations for military purposes, planned operations in various parts of the world to have their own discrete military service. GPS was developed as a military system and has a military band uh, which is not accessible to the myriads of users that we we all have with our cell phones and our, our smartphones and our GPS systems in cars. So mm. when you dig down and, and you peel back all the layers, just about everything we've got in space began as, as a military venture. So what is being talked about now is something so radical that, yes, it would completely tear up that international understanding and agreement that America has always politically committed to the non-orbiting of weapons of mass destruction or any other form, other than the use of kinetic weapons to destroy satellites. And both Russia and China and the United States have tested systems that are capable of doing that. Yeah, I mean, that's it's pretty scary, isn't it? I mean, it, it kind of seemed like Trump was saying this announcement like he'd come up with the idea off the hoof and then thought to himself, oh, yeah, that's quite a good idea. Does that ring true or does that just seem silly? <laughs> As a bit of Trumpism, um, it sounds silly, but the, the bizarre fact is that it's, it's probably correct to a certain extent because behind the scenes there has been intense debate in this last year or two Certain elements within the defense infrastructure want a, what has been referred to as a space corps, much like the Navy has a Marine Corps. The Air Force does not want a separate splintered-off service. Um, it is as protective um, of holding on to space today as the Army was just after the Second World War when the Air Force was going to be separated out as an independent Air Force. And that only happened in 1947. Um, and so we can see the same shadow, this, this well-established 70-year-old United States Air Force has been for the last 50 years responsible for all military operations in space in terms of launch and, and, and in most of the development, um, even for national security, for the National Security Agency, the CIA, as well as for other agencies. Um, the National Geospatial Agency for mapping, etc., all of that in the covert black world with dark satellites in space. And the limits to which space militarization has gone is, of course, so, so extensive now. Um, space assets are absolutely vital for both national security and the prosecution of a conflict, whether it's conventional or nuclear. And coincident with that is the vulnerability that these systems have to being brought down either literally impacted and destroyed or by cyber warfare which will scramble the value of the signals which they are returning so it's been very aware over the last few years and with with emphasis even in terrestrial communications of cyber hacking and various electronic intrusions into government servers at the deepest level of encryption, um, there is this concern, and so there are sleeper satellites in orbit. This has been quite um, a convention for a number of years now, that there are satellites there which may be logged as debris, but which are dispersed components 
of an open architecture that would morph together, not physically, but would start talking to each other to form the content of a single satellite so that it could then be used to stand robustly um, as replacement for a primary satellite known and logged and tracked by enemy forces that would be taken down and destroyed. The Air Force has taken this a step further and said, we need to be able to take out hostiles in space, which means not just kinetic weapons, but weapons of destruction mm. and not um, uh, using the mass impact either of projectiles, but also directed energy weapons such as lasers. And this all came up during the Reagan years with Star Wars, more formally called, called the Strategic Defense Initiative, which died a death because it envisaged things that were so sophisticated that technology was not sufficiently advanced to enable that to happen at the time. But with lasers being used to destroy targets now for close-in missile defense and increasingly being talked of as being deployed in space, not, not to hit rockets ascending through the atmosphere, as Reagan's Star Wars program was, but rather intra-space warfare that would not be concerned with what's happening down on Earth, but the, the rather chilling notion of fighting a conflict in space, machine on machine. Would it be fair to say that it's the rise of a more aggressive Russia, uh, maybe North Korea, maybe China has sort of kick-started the America getting back into this militarised complex, I suppose, again? I, I think the real, the real trigger has been, has been what has been evolving in China to a much greater extent the connections, the, the amount of research and development going in is phenomenal. It is far outpacing expectations in China, research and development into both electronics, into supercomputers. This year, China will have the world's most powerful computer. America will be knocked off its perch in that regard. There has been growing concern that all these disconnected activities in China particularly far outstripping anything Russia has been doing in terms of developing hardware and capabilities. There is no doubt that looking after its own national defense interests and its own national security interests, just as, as any major power will, Russia has been looking to consolidate and robustly um, defend its interests as it sees it and those shift in the political spectrum over years. China has become very great concern to the United States as it shifted its axis of primary first theater battle status, as it's called, from Europe to Southeast Asia. And it is the contested islands in the South China Sea. It is the massive expansion of its R&D development in electronics and computerization. Its unequivocal presence as the number one cyber hacker on the world stage routinely and proudly boasted about in China. This, this is nothing that's, that's even hidden. They, they are bragging <laughs> that they can take down anybody in the world. Contemporary politics can take your eye off the real ball very often. What the West is besotted with over the old Russophobia is veiling the rise of an extraordinary integrated network of capabilities in China, much of which is passive. Mm. much of which will help with the exploration of space for peaceful purposes. But it has this other side. And just as the United States, as the old Soviet Union, 
Now Russia is doing exactly the same thing, using space, using advanced technology to gain a leverage. So in actual fact, really, this has been emerging over the last few years. And with the geopolitical switch of polarity from Europe, no longer do we fear massed panzer divisions surging over the North German plains being, being deterred by Western NATO-deployed tactical nuclear weapons. At least most of us don't fear that anymore. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the axis has shifted of concern to Southeast Asia, and you're seeing a colossal... The, the economy of Britain is far bigger and stronger than that of modern Russia. But China is now knocking on the door of the United States in terms of the wealth of that nation. And, and so that is the area that is driving this unequivocally, no doubt about this. And where there used to be during the time of the Cold War a report on the status of the Soviet Union, every year we got these reports to the President of the United States on the situation with the Soviet Union. And that, that was an open document. And it was essentially a guidebook to all the military threats and national security threats from the Soviet Union. Now it is being switched to China. And there's an annual China book, which is warning about all these. So that alone is, a, is an indication, a barometer, on where the United States fears most of the threats will come from. Wow. So <laughs> now we've scared our listeners, shall we uh, move? <laughs> move? Well, let's look at the good side of China, shall we? The wonderful work they're doing, the peaceful exploration of space. We've got an amazing mission set coming up this year. Yes, so tell us a bit more about that mission then. Well, China is is committed to robustly supporting its national exploration of the lunar surface on its way to an expansive exploration of Mars and has a number of major launch vehicles underway. Long March 9, this huge rocket which is planning to put men on, on the moon in the 2030s um, and probably will achieve it slightly before that, maybe. But this year, uh, in just a couple of months, and, and I'm particularly proud to have an article by Keith Wilson in Spaceflight, which is looking at this exploration of the far side of the moon with the Chengi missions, which will be launched in May or June this year, uh, which will establish on the far side of the moon a communications network via an orbiter, which will act as a relay for a lander-rover combination. So there are three spacecraft. May or June, the communications spacecraft will be launched into an L2 position at, at lunar orbit, into a halo orbit first, um, and then positioned so it can look down and illuminate with its antenna, the far side, uh, in the south-eastern part of the far side of the moon, where six months later, at the end of this year or January next year, uh, China will launch the combined rover lander um, to do exactly what they say on the tin, to land at a point and then to go off to take samples of the surface for the first time to construct astrophysical experiments as well from the surface of the far side of the moon. And this is going to be a seminal mission in that no other spacecraft has landed on the far side of the moon in a condition that can report back data that it extracts from the surface. Well, I mean, it's absolutely incredible, isn't it? I mean, a lot of a lot of programs, a lot of magazines, a lot of podcasts, including ourselves, had a yeah. a are kind of looking forward to the year two thousand and eighteen uh, podcast, early January, and we we mentioned Changi Four, but we didn't go completely over the top, and and it was mainly because I couldn't really find much about it. It's right. uh, it's 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 one of those missions that's gone under the radar, but it sounds 
it sounds incredible. It sounds like it's it's one of the sort of major missions of the year. Well, it's it's being done as well on a very economic line because actually Chengi Four is the backup to Chengi Three, which five years ago landed U two on the Mare Imbrium, and so this mission to the Aitken Basin area on, on the far side is, is just absolutely amazing. They chose nine potential sites and were highly selective in landing in a place which could add very significant information to our understanding. We need to get back on the moon. We really need to pick up on the J-series Apollo missions, 15, 16, and 17, where we had an enormous harvest of data and deployed instruments that continue to send information back for nearly 10 years on the conditions on the near side. And the near side and the far side are so very, very different. And mm. that's why we need to get to the far side to, com- to really begin the permanent deployment of robotic and eventually human assets down there on the surface, helping us really understand this biplanetary system. And that's the, why, that's the reason we use M in the moon in uppercase when we write it. We don't use lowercase moon. It is not a moon. It is the yeah. moon. And we are a biplanetary system. And to understand our Earth, its place in the solar system, its geomorphological past and its potential future, we need to understand the back garden of this wonderful planet, which embraces this, this other partner, this biplanetary system of which we are. And so I'm really excited about this. You can probably tell. Yes. <laughs> well, you've certainly enthused me to have a, a, a look more into it. I think I'm going to have to have a, a Changi 4 special. With the, with, the, with the exploration of the dark side of the moon, do you think... Um... Oh, Matt, it's not the dark side. It's not the dark well, side. Well, yeah, yes, okay. <laughs> the far side of the moon. God damn it. <laughs> with the far side of the moon. Well, actually, what I meant to say was the dark side yeah. of the moon in terms of it's more radio silent. It's more radio dark. From, You're intellectually from... ahead of me. <laughs> in, in the dark, dark as in dark matter. Not that it's dark matter in the universe, but yeah. we, we, we just don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, there we go, yes. Um, yeah. But uh, will we start to see people trying to build observatories on the far side of the moon? Oh, thank you, Matt. That would be absolutely fantastic. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you raised that possibility because, of course, right the way from many of the space prophets, um, Arthur C. Clarke, Werner von Braun, people who pointed to the great advantages of landing on the far side of the moon because, of course, it is completely radio dark, as you say. Hmm. And uh, we've, we've got this... With all of the drivel and the dross um, that we pour out of our thousands of TV and radio stations all going simultaneously on the airwaves out into the universe, um, all of that is, is broadcasting out and pollutes and distorts the, the very strong return that we can get from the radio universe ourselves. And so that particular part, if you think right past the moon, the far side of the moon, because we're in this wonderful, advantageous position of being within access to a biplanetary partner, the moon, which is locked in synchronous rotation, of course, the, the far side, and sometimes the dark side when it's uh, 
full moon on our side and the moon's <laughs> on the far side of the earth and that far yeah. side is the dark side. So yeah. not only not only is it for, for both optical observation as well as for radio astronomy, that far side, it could easily be the Rosetta Stone of unlocking the next phase of our remote sensing of the universe. Yeah, I've, I've, I think I, how expensive the James Webb telescope has become. Yeah. I'm assuming that you could maybe, with those kind of funds, actually really think about building an observatory of equal, if not better, quality on the far side? Well, astronomers certainly question very deeply. Um, very few will, will challenge the, the vital role that the James Webb telescope has to play, but there are many, many people who will say that uh, with the money that's been spent on that, you could have done so much more with Earth-based astronomy. Um, and no, okay, you would not have the assets um, that you will have, hopefully, with the James Webb Space Telescope. It's a balance of priorities. It's certainly grown phenomenally outside the expectations of what it would cost. Yeah. And uh, if, if we, I think this really speaks to the need for an infrastructure on the moon, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And talking of infrastructure on the moon... Yeah, and expensive yeah. projects, then yeah. I suppose we're talking about the Deep Space Gateway or the right. Lunar Orbiting Platform. Is that its new name? Indeed, it, yes, yes, Lopty. And Lopty. Uh, it's, not, mm. it's not exactly one of, the, one of the acronyms that lends itself to, to a, a respectful word, but, but Lopty. Um, <laughs> well, it's an initialization the, uh, now rather than an acronym, yeah. isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But the Lunar Orbital Platform, that, that, of course, is considered now by the international partners for the space station. And whether we continue with the space station beyond 2024 or not, I think it's fairly embedded now in the planning in that um, within the last month, international conference of all the primary partners of the International Space Station, which is NASA, which is Roscosmos, which is JAXA in Japan and the Canadian National Space Agency, everybody has agreed that this is the best way now is to move the the um, permanent occupation of of a weightless environment in space from near Earth to deep space and outside the magnetosphere, and that will bring many challenges uh, because also crashing headlong into that has just been released, the long-term uh, results of astronaut mm. Kelly, and there are serious concerns about the genetic modification to his body, which occurred within the magnetosphere, within the protective shell, but simply adding weightless uh, compared to his brother, who one may remember was a twin who remained on Earth, and who had the same medical examination protocols, um, the results have come back to say that the body of Scott Kelly was considerably modified genetically. We're seeing in-situ genetic changes occurring within one human compared to another. And this very important, I mean, it, it, it's just extraordinary that those two were both astronauts and yet both were twins and both were able to participate in this. So when we, we begin to look at, at what happens to the human body, I think everybody's going to be fascinated to get people out there in deep space within the exposure to the radiation environment. Um, cautionary, not the Van Allen belts, of course, 
um, but out into an unprotected region of deep space where we have to see the effects on people because what we're seeing from just weightlessness within the protection of the magnetosphere has some dark forebodings with regard to long-term human exposure. Yeah, that was something like a 7% change in the expression of his genes compared to his brother's, yes. which is, which is yes. enormous. I mean, if it... Enormous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, yeah. That, it's, it's scary, and I wonder how long that effect will last for. I mean, if it's permanent, that, that's, that's an extremely serious pause for thought, isn't it? It is. It is. I understand. I, this, this is not my field at all, but I, I understand from from opinion among those who, who seriously are, are at the forefront, forefront of the sciences that, that there are going to be some permanent fixtures in the changes that have occurred, have been seen. So I think this, this morphs into concerns that I think a lot of us have had for these clarion calls to go heading off for Mars immediately because we're unprepared in our knowledge set and our databases with regard to the effects it's going to have on humans. And uh, I don't think anybody wants to go down that apocalyptic route of sending people without knowing the consequences it will have on them or, 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 or on the, the overall. It could completely destroy all appetite for expansion into deep space unless we go cautiously and solve these problems as we go. Yeah, unless, of course, the, these genetic changes have caused Scott Kelly to have special powers, as predicted by <laughs> the X-Men. <laughs> well, who knows? We could be on a whole yeah, this, this new might be it. journey here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but then again, the solar system's not merely the limit, is it? No, no, exactly. So, <laughs> but actually, before <laughs> before we go on to interstellar travel, I want to bring back just a topic from the first topic back into this is into this one, uh, right. which is which is actually uh, in the news, obviously very much in Britain. Is the is how Britain and uh, Russia are obviously extremely falling out at the moment. Do you think? that this uh, particular incident, the poisoning of Russian spies on British soil, do you think that that's actually going to affect the what has been uh, a really fruitful uh, collaboration between the West and Russia in space? Well, I think that our collaboration is undamaged by what has happened on the political front. Um... I have to say that I have a great admiration for Russian science and engineering. Um, I spent quite a lot of time on numerous visits to the former Soviet Union um, in the pre-Gorbachev years when I was negotiating and discussing the potential use of proton launch vehicles for Inmarsat satellites. Um, And so had the privileged opportunity quite a high level to be given access to talk with their scientists and engineers and to visit their facilities, to go to the launch complexes and to the space centers. And so I got quite a a spread over quite a number of years on through to the period when the Soviet Union itself collapsed. And I was greatly heartened and impressed by the fact that beneath the politics and beneath the posturing and the propaganda and the deliberate disinformation from both sides on many issues with regard to cooperation or non-cooperation, that deep down there is a base of desire 
among Russian scientists and engineers and the Russian people to work not only for the better conditions of their own state, as many scientists and engineers are motivated to do so in the West, but to maintain that solid link of cooperation. And that, I have to say, my own experience pales into insignificance compared to those who are daily living their lives together aboard the International Space Station. And I guess I'm a half-glass-full person rather than half-glass-empty. And so I have a positive feel that we will overcome these spats and these misunderstandings. And I can only hope that it comes sooner rather than later because there's so much that we can maintain. And there's been no indication yet that anybody wants to upset this extraordinary bond and connection that we've had. And that bond and connection actually was spawned before the end of the Soviet Union. There was a huge, deeply held desire for us all to work together and to put aside this political bickering and petty partisanship. And it actually runs quite deep within many of the institutions in Russia, and it, it existed in the former Soviet Union in much harder days than we see today. So I think with the agreements that are going forward, with the complete, um, it, it's almost like there's a cordon sanitaire among all of these sparring sparring antagonists in both directions who don't want to touch really serious areas. And I have to say that the Russian space program would evaporate if it was not for cooperation with the West. They have cooperation with China, but not to the extent that they're deeply embedded with the the collegiate of international partners on space station, they know they would have no human spaceflight program. They'd have to start literally from Vostok up, in relatively in terms of where they would be, because they'd have nothing. Because they, their economy is less than that of the United Kingdom, and they're maintaining a space program on that. Yeah. So really backing right off, which, which I like to do. It's very easy to get spoiled by the muck and the debris down at day-to-day -day level and to be contaminated by that. But if you stand up and look at the broad picture, there's much, much more going on here than just these political spats between, between temporary custodians of political positions because they all come and go. The space programs existed for 60 years <laughs> and, and there's no world leader that's lasted that long except our queen of course this has lived through the whole <laughs> well yeah i mean the, <laughs> but you see the point i'm making here yeah no that, absolutely that, you know and and that is where and, and so uh, it might not be the favored interpretation but i live in great hope that we will come through these times and i hope that we continue to deal with the Russians because we have a tremendous amount to learn from the way they do science and engineering and more power to them because through them we can all do more. That's what we've built ourselves away from, that encapsulated tribalism of the Cold War era. And, and I'm convinced that what we've built, and I think that's one of the greatest and most, and most proudest things of the space program, is that we have cut through the bickering and that we have stood fast and maintained with good friends on both sides an extraordinary vanguard of what I hope is a huge, enduring train of cooperation 
and capabilities that empowers us all to do much greater things. We couldn't have a space station if it had just been America or ESA hmm. or Russia. And so we need this, and I think it's going to be there. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean, in which case, I mean, really, the, the, the case for bringing China in from the cold is even, is even more powerful, isn't it? I mean, that, that, if, you can build, if you can build up the same relationship with China, then, re, then the sky's the limit. Uh, yes, maybe, maybe even interstellar travel. So, Maybe. <laughs> so, I can see where you're going with it. <laughs> so my, my, my segue wasn't quite as good as yours. But I had the question in my head. You got me on the dark side of the lens. <laughs> so uh, um, to, uh, off, to, off to Alpha Centauri then. So, uh, yeah. yes, what's, you have a, an article coming up about that. Yes. Peter Milne has been looking um, over a number of years at the challenges facing those who would have us head off toward the nearest stars, and, and I think this is one of the most exciting developments in space futurism, um, in the field of futurism, and, and I am a futurist because mm-hmm. I, I believe that we are, that this is not past, present, and future, but that we, we're on a rolling conveyor belt of current affairs and that we are each of us experiencing just one frame on a running movie so i think the natural progression is for us and the sooner the better to to provide an international program where we can uh, develop um, an interstellar mission Um, we could do it to be able to get to alpha centauri within a lifetime and get data back within a lifetime there's the organization i4is Mm-hmm. with Calvin Long and many other loyal followers um, closely connected with the British Interplanetary Society who are working feverishly to develop the protocols and the standards by which these projects could get funding. And so many people have been looking at the technical challenges and the problems. This is not about t- sending people to Alpha Centauri, mm-hmm. of course, but this is to send emissaries, robotic emissaries, so that we can understand better and stay within the planetary system of the Alpha Centauri complex and its several stars and planets. And so Peter has been looking at how you navigate from here to there. And while we have been been throwing our spacecraft all, all over the solar system in the last 50 or 60 years, it has all been against a fixed frame celestial reference. But when you start to move out of the solar system and go light years across space, your celestial coordinate system just evaporates mm. because there is no common standard. And, of course, the trajectory itself, using star mapping, will require you to make very early decisions in the flight path, which could significantly affect whether you completely miss or precisely follow the trajectory that you need in order to go to Alpha Centauri. You know, when we have a space mission, we go through these mid-course corrections, as they're called. So, mm-hmm. so essentially, you aim for a pretty wide gate. Then when you get to that gate, you narrow it further down as you go toward whether it's Mars or Jupiter or to slip into orbit, whatever. So you have an interminable number of course corrections you can make until you're so close you can't make any further corrections and that's it. But you're so close that the the random errors that are inherent within the navigation systems you use 
allow you to be within a few hundred meters, literally, of where you want to be. Our initial space missions had to get you within about 100 kilometers of your desired location in space if you were going to Mars. That was the missed distance, 100 kilometers. That was thought horrendously challenging when Mariner 4 went to Mars in 1965. Hmm. And now we're targeting spacecraft to within a couple of hundred meters of a given spot around the curvature of Mars to slip into orbit. But you can't do that when you go to the stars because you're going to be accelerating. And so rather than slowing and slowing and slowing as you, as you go further from the sun toward your destination so that you have got any, any delta velocity you need to put in as meters per second it is a higher percentage because the velocity is slower. <laughs> so the changes that you make... Whereas, are you with me? Yeah, so yes, that, yes, I'm keeping up, I'm trying to, yes. yes. So that you start maybe out at 36,000 kilometers, 36,000 meters per second, and slow down and slow down and slow down, so that the corrections you make with those tiny engines are a higher proportion of the velocity you get to. Remember, when we left... When we left Earth to go to the moon, we were flying at Mark 25. By the time we reached the equigravosphere between Earth and moon, we were flying at less than the speed of a supersonic jet. Hmm. And that's the difference. So that the magnitude of your change in your velocity is so much more influential on the course that you're making, the closer you get, because you're going slower and slower and slower, until the point when you come under the gravity field and start to speed up. But the relative velocities, as you accelerate to out going faster and faster and faster rather than climbing that initial speed within a matter of an hour or so and then all of a sudden it comes going slower and slower and slower you're actually starting slow and going faster and faster and faster so the magnitude of error in any slight changes you make is going to be colossal rather mm. than less and less well almost chaotic i mean you can also almost be... chaotic yeah. yes indeed so you're going into essentially the kind of computational dynamics which challenge the Boolean equations almost to the nth degree. And, and this, is where, this is where we explore this with Peter's article in, in this next issue of Spaceflight. But it's challenging because those reciprocals whereby you're speeding up rather than slowing down completely transform and your navigational set as well, if you're using star sightings, if you're slightly off course, a light year away, the star field you see if you're using star centers will be totally different to that if you were finally right on course. Hmm. So the computational requirements are going to be enormous. Yeah, I mean, does the, I mean, I read a few articles about using things like pulsars and quasars as a, as a f sort of space GPS system. It, right. does, does, does that help? Is that, is that an element that could be used in the navigation of the stars? Oh, yes, they could. Yes, they could. I think the devil is in the detail in that you've, you've really got to work on the, the algorithms within the within the flight control systems, as we might call them, or the navigation sets, because they have to be capable of taking out corrections so that the, the, the probe will have to know it's, slight, it's on slightly the wrong course very, very fast, because it will not have the ability 
um, in what we would call delta V, the magnitude of speed change in meters per second or feet per second or whatever mm. measurement. Um, but that's going to be completely transformed within, as I just said, within the structure of the trajectory that you're using. But if you can program the computer to know the star field it would see to get itself back on, then you've got horrendous problems. And, and as Peter points out, in this article in Spaceflight, that there are three phases to a voyage to Alpha Centauri. There's acceleration, deceleration, and then there's the operations at the target itself. Mm. And you're, you're not doing a conventional flight path trajectory where you enter what's known as a home and transfer ellipse going. So you put your spacecraft on the way to Mars in orbit around the sun, but with the high point right out there at Mars, by which time by which time your speed is, is very, very, very slow on the laws of Kepler uh, yeah. because you're at the high point of your orbit. And, and so you've got all the advantage there. You really have. And, and so everything within the solar system is slanted to our advantage. But when it comes to moving out, you've got to program it for a completely different star set. And whether it's, whether it's Rigel or Canopus or whatever star it is, built into the navigation systems of spacecraft, you're not going to be able to use those sets in the same standardized way. So that's just one small part of, of, of the problem. But the real issue is that, that you're going to be spending as much time speeding up as you are slowing down, which is very different to conventional spaceflight within the solar system. Yeah, absolutely. And so really, any interstellar spacecraft is going to really have to have some form of supercomputer to be able to take in the information and react to the information quick enough to maintain these almost chaotic flight paths so that so that you're not yeah. suddenly light years off your yes. target yes that's right and i am informed by those again at the forefront of this technology that we have that computational capability today i think the packaging problem is the real issue because it's likely that an initial probe will weigh maybe not kilograms but grams because mm. the velocity to which you will need to accelerate it um, the mass of the structure that is accelerating will be factored in to a much greater extent than the payload that you're sending um, and and so consequently that's going to be a very very important factor as well and there are some very intriguing schemes um, and and we consistently in the magazine are supporting this debate and this decision from very focused examinations of particular aspects. So this is not something that's new in spaceflight. Um, I'm very, very keen to continue the discussion and to have papers and to have reports um, from specialists working in these fields uh, to begin to, for us all to be aware of the extraordinary challenges which, which th th this will face us with. But essentially, the... the this is our moon vision to those in the days of Sputnik when we dared to hope that we could reach the moon. And now looking back 50 years from that event, we have this next next phase to push to. And I, I would hope actually, Matt, that as we come up to the 50th anniversary of these great Apollo events, we use that as a platform to launch forward with the Apollo ethic, which is to dream great dreams, fine, but to do great things and to push on and not just to theorize and to speculate and to ruminate over what would be wonderful if, but to do the can-do element and to reach beyond our grasp, 
and all of those comparisons that we've heard quotations from in the past to put it into action with these grand, grand strategies. Do you think you will see the launch of a interstellar craft uh, in your lifetime, my lifetime, uh, people who are young today's lifetime? What sort, well, what, sort of, what sort of time frame would you think that there is the capability to do it into an interstellar launch that's actually well, useful? Yeah, without turning it into the obvious joke it could be. I mean, I, I've been actively <laughs> participating in the space program for 50 years, so whether I see it in my lifetime, um, I'm in my mid-70s now, um, I really feel I could. Um, I won't live to see the return of data from Alpha Centauri, but I believe we can do this. I believe we could do this within the same amount of time that we are projecting among the international partners for putting a lunar orbit platform around the moon. I think we could do this within 10 years if we had the resolve, if we had the drive and the vision to do it. That decision is probably going to be made in this generation right now or the next. But if not, then I really believe it could and and I believe it's a possibility that it might in my lifetime. Yeah, it's... it's it's one of those um, convergent uh, things, isn't it? it? It requires a whole heap of technologies to come to either either to be established or to mature to a point yeah. where it's it's possible. And, and yeah. I guess it, it's looking like that they're going to get to that point. I guess we, we, we've always got this problem of the real problem is how do you raise money for something where you don't even see the data back for 20 yeah. years, 30 years, yeah. if you're lucky. This is something to connect the, the next generation with. Those who are now in, in, in high school or undergraduates, graduates, these are because it can be made to happen and to have the data back in, in the lifetime of somebody entering higher education today. The entire gamut of a mission to Alpha Centauri could be realised within the lifetime of somebody actually in higher education right now. Yeah, well, I, I know we have a lot of um, a lot of undergrads and graduate students listening. Uh, so, well, they, yeah, that's yeah. that's your that's your call out. <laughs> there you go, folks. You've got the challenge. <laughs> we did the moon. You do Alpha Centauri. E- easy. You've, you've heard from David how easy it is. <laughs> oh, nobody said it was easy. Well, yeah, well, the moon definitely wasn't easy. Well, let's let's quote Kennedy that we do this not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Yeah, and and the and the payoff of the moon. We're st- we're still having it, aren't we? We're still getting the yes, payoff on so many yes. levels. Uh, yes, thanks very much for joining me again, David. That's been a really, really brilliant chat. And uh, hopefully I can squeeze that all in put okay. to our podcast. Thank you very much all for right, joining man. us. And uh, I look, really look forward to uh, this month's space flight to read all about it. Thank you very much, Matt. Right, what do you think of that, Jamie? It's just another genius snapshot of the brain of David Baker. Aye. Amazing. That just leaves us with one thing to do, Jamie, and that's the space fact. Space fact. Space fact. We're getting uh, we're getting a bit highbrow with this space fact because um, mm. this is all about you know when you think astronauts are, are just a hundred percent prim and proper and they've got everything right and they dot the i's and cross the t's. But let me ask you something, Matt. Mm. Do you think that they change their underwear every day in space? Well, if 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 one of them was to have like a terrible accident and the and the ambulance crew 
would see that they weren't, surely that would be a disaster. Well, it's what it's what their mothers would tell them to do. <laughs> it's what my mum used to say, you know, wear some clean pants. Yeah, because... In case you get knocked down by a car. I mean, it's, that's the least of your worries, but never mind, mum. Yeah, so it was a pity that she didn't tell me to look both ways before crossing the road, mm. but never mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what, what's, so what, the, what's the story, Matt? Well, imagine it. Well, I mean, we've just heard that uh, that that the bunch that have just gone up, they're going to be they're going to be staying there till August two thousand and eighteen. So they're going to a six mm. month stay up there. So um, it's if you were to have a pair of you know nice clean underwear every day, that'd be a lot of underwear because apparently. It would be a lot. They don't have a washing machine on the inter- international space station. I was going to say, what do they do? Or How a tumble do they wash dryer. Their or a tumble dryer. So um, what they've done, they've they've tried lots of different things, like just wearing their pants for days and days and days. One of the mm. astronauts wore his shorts for something like three months because he just liked that pair of shorts. <laughs> right. Well, fair play. Mm. But famously, to get round this p- problem. And, or, or to use it to his advantage, an American astronaut known as Don Petit discovered that by folding his underpants into a sphere shape and stitching in some of the Russian toilet paper, which isn't, which isn't like your normal toilet paper, it's, it's a bit thicker and it's got some kind of woolen gauze in the middle of Ooh, it. Oh, blimey. So, that sounds painful. Yeah. Um, apparently, he's, he managed to create a sort of warm environment where for tomato and basil seeds to start germinating in. <laughs> oh my god! So it's like the extra bacteria in his in his in his pants have you know have acted like extra nutrients for the plants. Imagine <laughs> imagine Don cooking a meal and suddenly saying, oh, "Does anyone want any tomatoes?" You could, and everyone being like, "Don, no, we know where you we know where you grew them." Oh man, yeah, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Plant uh, tomatoes love human poo, though. Oh, God. Basil, anyone? <laughs> uh, no, thanks, Don. <laughs> it's all right, Don. No, it's okay. You're all right. Yeah. My God. Yeah, so, yeah, he, he started growing growing his plants in his pants. But I guess, you know what? I mean, when you're up there, you're not really going to be... You're not going to be sitting down. You're probably not going to be sweating that much because, you know, unless you're running on the... Well, of course you're going to be sweating. What am I thinking about? You're going to be exercising for two days, uh, two hours a day. Yeah, but apparently it's not as bad as you'd bad, bad as you'd think because mm. the space stations at a pretty even temperature. Most of the time, you you haven't got gravity to work against you, so it, you're not really building up a sweat. But yeah, they have yeah. to do a lot of exercising, and presumably they do sweat a lot. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the Russians, mm. I think, are trying to in, uh, invent a system where they have bacteria that. Um, will eat it all and then create fuel for the spacecraft, which I think is pretty ambitious. How do they wash their clothes? Do we know that? Well, I think... I mean, is it literally just kind of... One of them invented a, a, a way of putting his, putting his shorts into a plastic bag and, mm. and washing him that way. But I think that's about it. Right. But it's like a nightmare. Apparently, it's even worse for their socks because they're not... Because they don't use their feet like you use your feet on Earth, because they're not, you know, mm. you're not being crushed by gravity. Apparently, your all the skin, all the dead skin on the bottom of your foot starts dropping off. And of course, if you're wearing mm. your socks for three or four days, your socks sort of fill up with dead skin. Ooh. So you've got to be careful when you take them off. It doesn't, all your dead skin doesn't come off in a massive cloud of dead skin all like around a the spaceship. Storm. Oh God, I'm not sure I want to go well, to the International Space image. Station now. Sorry if anyone's eating. 
So, thank you very much for joining us, listeners, on Podcast 73. This has been the Interplanetary Podcast. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. Bye-bye, Space Podcasts.